thank you for coming on the Sabbath afternoon. What we're talking about this afternoon is a very interesting part of Adventist history. I will share a Bible study with you, but the Bible study is related to the history. It has to do with William Miller when he first became a Christian, for real. You know, Miller, when he became a Christian, it wasn't in a vacuum. You know that he had relatives that he'd made fun of that were ministers. And he had been well-read before he was even a deist. Um, Miller had read Isaac Newton. How many of you are aware that Isaac Newton wrote as much on prophecy as he did on... And most of you, Isaac Newton loved prophecy. And he systemized prophecy. That is, for Isaac Newton, prophecy wasn't something that you sort of... If it could go one or two ways, you guess at it. He thought there was system and science to it, and he, yeah, he wrote some fascinating material. Isaac Newton, among the things he understood, one of them was the day-for-year principle. That was not an idea invented by the Millerites. It had been used for a long period before them. If you've ever seen that large series, uh, The Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers by Leroy Froome, it just documents case after case of people who used the day-for-year principle prior to the Millerites. Why am I telling you that? Because once Miller decided to study the Bible and find answers to his own deistical questions and those of others, he began at Genesis. Maybe some of you know this story, that he began at Genesis and began going through the Bible, reading every verse, and this was his aim. He wanted to make sure that he could harmonize every passage with every other passage so at least he could have an intelligent consistent internal understanding of Scripture. He didn't want anything in here to, to threaten him in discussion with someone who was a deist or an agnostic or an infidel. You know, he was using a concordance in his studies, and the type of the concordance was a crudence concordance. Do any of you have a crudence concordance? They're much more convenient than a Strong's or a Young's concordance. When I say convenient, I mean it's because you can fit them in your pocket. If you had a Bible that had a, you could have a Cruden's Concordance in the back of a Bible and it wouldn't make it that much bigger. It leaves out the thes and the ofs and the ands and all those things. It's just the keywords. But it also entirely leaves out the Hebrew and Greek lexicons and references. It's just an English concordance to find English words. That's what Miller was using, was just a Cruden's Concordance. And he came to a passage, turn with me in your Bibles, to Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26. Leviticus 26 has an incredible, beautiful promise at the beginning of it, but we're not going to read the promise. We're going to start in verse 14. But if you will not hearken unto me, and will not do all these commandments, can you guess what the condition is of receiving the beautiful promises before this? Wouldn't it be? It'd be hearkening and doing. That's what it would be. Verse 15, if you shall despise my statutes, or if your soul abhor my judgments. I think there are today many people whose souls abhor the executive judgments of God. When they hear about them or read about them or think about them, they just abhor the idea of God executing wrath on the wicked. If your soul abhor my judgments so that you will not do all my commandments, but that you break my covenant, I also will do this unto you. I will even appoint over you terror, consumption, 
the burning agoo, and you that shall consume the eyes and cause sorrow of heart. And you shall sow your seed in vain, and your enemies shall eat it. And I will set my face against you, and you shall be slain before your enemies, and they that hate you shall reign over you, and you shall flee when none pursues you. And if you will not for all this hearken to me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins. It's that seven times there, that last part. Miller knew from his previous reading what Isaac Newton had written about, for example, the times in Daniel. A times, a dividing of times, a time times a dividing of times. A time that is a year, then a, that'd be 360 years with the day for year principle. So in trying to understand this passage, if three and a half times is 1260 years, then seven times, that'd be seven times 360 that comes out to 2,520. So William Miller was understanding. So God said, I'll punish the Jews 2,520 years if they will not listen. He found this before he got to Daniel 8, for example. He found this because he was going through the Bible chronologically, Genesis and through. And in uh, trying to find dates for that, He found here in Leviticus 26 that it speaks about captivity. That's one of the judgments that's listed here, that God would send his people into captivity. You know, this this prophecy occurs, a similar wording to it, several times in this chapter. Look at verse 21. And if you will walk contrary unto me and will not hearken to me, I will bring seven times more plagues upon you according to your sins. Do you notice there that God indicates that whatever this judgment is, that it's just? He says seven more times, I mean, seven more times plagues according to your sins. There's a ratio there, or there's an equality. The punishment would be equal to the sin. Look down at verse 24. Then will I also walk contrary unto you, and I will punish you yet seven times for your sins. Down to verse 28, or 27. And if you will not for all this hearken to me, but will walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary unto you in fury, and I, even I, will chastise you seven times for your sins. William Miller, thinking these things through, could not see any sense in the idea that God would punish Israel for 10,080 years. So he concluded that these four references must be references to the very same judgment. This idea that if you don't do right, I'm going to punish you. I'm saying if you don't do right, I'm going to punish you. If you don't do right, I'm going to punish you. This idea so that he understood all four of them to refer to the same time period. Can you follow what I'm saying? And he began looking for the fulfillment of it in connection with the, when God's people went into captivity. Maybe we should come back to that, but I think I'll just, to make this make sense to you, start here. He eventually landed on the particular captivity of Manasseh. Manasseh, you remember, was the king of the two tribes. The ten tribes had gone into captivity quite some time before Manasseh. Manasseh went into captivity, the first of the tribe, first of Judah and Benjamin to go into captivity. Did Manasseh stay in captivity? Don't you remember your Bible history? 
when he went in. Did, did he stay there? No, he came back out, right, after. But then there was another captivity. In fact, there, finally, after Hezekiah, you had a captivity that was final. That's when uh, Daniel went into captivity. Well, then there was another one after that when Jeremiah, of course, was there, and he wasn't taken, but the rest were. I guess what I'm trying to tell you is that there are quite a number of experiences of Judah going into captivity recorded in the Scripture. And the first of those was that of Manasseh. It's interesting that if you take Manasseh's first captivity, start there and go forward 2,520 years, you'll come to 1844. Miller came to 1843, but that was because of the same mistake he made in all the other prophecies. Uh, But yeah, you'll come to 1844. Isn't that interesting? So William Miller began teaching. Now, you should know that it wasn't just the 2,300 days that William Miller thought came to 1843. There were quite a number of prophecies that Miller thought came to this period of time. One of them was the 6,000-year prophecy. But it's not in here. But I mean, but this idea, he understood that a day is with the Lord as a thousand years. If the millennium is a rest, then the history of the earth ought to be about 6,000 years. And when Miller ended up doing his chronology through the Chronicles and Kings, he came to quite a different picture than Usher. Almost a hundred and well, a hundred and fifty-three years different than Usher, and when he did it, he found that the six thousandth year of the world would be eighteen forty-three. But more than that, you know the jubilee. Some people say the jubilee was every forty-nine years. Some say it was every fifty years. One thing that's for certain is that it was the least celebrated of any of the Jews' uh, holy days. There just isn't a credible reference to one ever having been kept. But it was intended to be kept, right? They should have had every 50 years one of these jubilee experiences. They should have done it. It should have been. Maybe it was done for a while and just not recorded. Miller found the dating of a jubilee and calculated the first one and understood that there would be a great jubilee. That would be 49 times 50, like a jubilee of jubilees. And when you multiply that out, you get 2,450 years. And if you take that 2,450 years from the first jubilee that he dated, it brings you to 1843. So as Adventists, when we grow up, we hear about the 2,300 days, and maybe we hear about the 1335 and these would be about the only two prophecies that we ever hear about coming to 1844. Would that be about right for most of us? The 2300 and the 1335. But the 1335, no matter how you stretch it, you can't get it to 1844 because it doesn't go over the, the zero year, right? It starts on in the AD section. And if you start in the AD, you can't add a year. So that one only goes to 1840. I think I've already lost like four-fifths of you. And I'm feeling very badly about that. So I'm going to just review quickly and try to go forward. What I'm telling you is that William Miller got to 1843 not just one way, but many ways. It doesn't look to me like they all had equal value. 
it looks to me like after the great disappointment that most of them were entirely dropped by the teachers that became Sabbatarian Adventist. We really only held on to one of them, and that was the 2300 days. That had been the lifeblood of the movement. That had been the, the only one that had specified a day, namely October 22. That had been, that was the one. Why? Well, let's go to more. What did Miller expect to happen at the end of this 2,520-day prophecy? He expected the Jews would be freed by Christ's coming. That's it. Christ would come, and the Jews, that would be the end of their long, that's a long captivity, right? 2,500 years, that is a long one. He expected that they would be set free, the faithful ones, at that point. What became very apparent after 1844 is that whatever happened in 1844, it didn't have any impact on the experience of the Jews. Do you follow that, that idea? And so that very reality, it sort of sunk the message of the 2520 for the, for the Adventist preachers after 1844. But I want you to get the idea that no one ever mentioned it again, because that's just not true. There were two Adventist preachers who were very interested in time prophecies more than you are now. That was James White and Joseph Bates. These men did not give up easily. And after the disappointment, it was not immediately that they concluded that everything had been wrong and that all the dates went to 1844. I mean, they both began looking to see, would there be another date? Uh, They'd settled at one time on 46 and one time in 1851. They were interested, and they were talking about these other dates. Ellen White never cooperated with that business, and eventually she ended up rebuking any, any type of time setting like that. But initially, she didn't touch it, and they were looking for other dates. Joseph Bates had a burden. He felt like that the Sunday-keeping Adventist, when they were disappointed, had thrown their entire belief system right out the window. Don't you know that their belief system had been built on a certain set of principles of biblical interpretation, principles about how to study the Bible? And these principles had led them, when they were disappointed, many of them had rejected even, for example, the day-for-year principle, or even the idea of a literal second coming, or the idea that the promises to the Jews are now fulfilled in the Christian church. I mean, the very fundamental ideas that formed the basis of William Miller's teaching the Sunday-keeping Adventists began to drop them one by one. And Joseph Bates and James White tried to work together to show that the Sabbath-keeping Adventists were holding on to William Miller's principles. So they published an article in the Advent Review. That article showed how we were taking all those same prophecies that William Miller taught and just taking the same interpretation, but just moving it to 1844. And that article mentioned the 2520 and the 2450 and the 6000 and the 2300. All these prophecies I mentioned, they're all right there in just one paragraph. If you ever do a Google search on the, excuse me, not a Google search. (laughs) If you do a search on the new Ellen White CD-ROM for the 2520, you'll find this paragraph in several places. Have you already seen it there, the 2520 and the no. All right. Well, you'll see it there if you go looking. Not on the part where you're searching Ellen White's writings. 
you'd have to go to the Pioneer Library part of the CD. I just realized you might find it, you might do a dry run and think I was telling you a lie. You have to, you'd have to look in the right part for it to work for you. Welcome. That's all right. Um, the 2520 and the 2300 days, these two ended up having a little bit longer life than the others for two different reasons. The 2300, because it was picked up by O.R.L. Crozier, by Hiram Edson, by Mr. Dr. Hahn, by the Whites. Remember, Edson had that vision, right, in the cornfield or that experience where God gave him wisdom. Hiram Edson felt really bad about this 2520 thing. And as he was doing his own personal study over the course of about a decade, he ended up modifying in his own mind very many of the understandings he had had prior to 1844. Uh, His understanding, for example, of that red beast in uh, Revelation 17, the scarlet beast, was that it was a reference to Napoleon and that it referred to the different seven types of kingdoms that existed under Napoleon's reign. And uh, he had quite a number. He understood this idea of the time of the Gentiles that is spoken of by Jesus in Luke 21, 24, that time of the Gentiles to be a reference to the second half of the 2520. And this is what Hiram Edson concluded. William Miller had used the wrong date to start the 2520. Hiram Edson went back to an earlier captivity of the Ten Tribes, one that happened in 723 B.C. And if you start the 2520 there with the Ten, it ends in 1798. Now that made a lot more sense to Hiram Edson, because though nothing really happened that related to the Jews in 1843 or 44, something did happen related to the Christian church in 1798, That is, there was a deadly wound of that oppressive regime. And so if the oppressors have a deadly wound, that means some sort of freedom for the oppressed. Do you sort of follow that idea? If the the church has gone into captivity for 1260 years into the wilderness, when that ends, well, then she's coming out of that wilderness experience. And so this was Hiram Edson's understanding of the 2520. He wrote an article about this, and he sent it to the Review and Herald. If you ever have been in the habit of reading those early reviews, you know that they were very, by liberal I mean generous, they were very liberal in how they published uh, articles. They published articles even if they weren't sure that they were just right or just so. And um, often they published contradictory articles. It It was like a discussion in writing. That's about how they looked at kind of like our Sabbath school class was some of their publications, kind of like that. So what Hiram Edson said is, I'm putting this out for you all to evaluate. Think it through. I haven't had time to mature these ideas. If you think there's value in it, then study it out more as brethren and let's do something. If you don't, then let's drop it. And he put it out there. He wrote it as one article, but I think James White thought it was too long for one article, so he spread it out over about eight uh, weeks of publication. 
No one ever mentioned that article again. Hiram Edson's ideas in it were never brought up again by him or by anybody else. Um, the next time the idea of the 2520 shows up in one of our Adventist publications, you can't be sure who wrote it. It probably was James White, but it shows up in an, an unidentified editorial. Now, who wrote the editorial didn't put his name at the end of it. And in that editorial, the author wrote that while it would be a terrible thing to ignore a prophecy that God had given about time, it would also be a negative thing to teach a prophecy that doesn't rightly exist. And he was referring to the 2520, saying that that prophecy really isn't, it doesn't exist. Now, of course, we just read it in Leviticus 26, right? Well, of course, he had read it there. And let me tell you what whoever that author was was thinking as early as the late, I just want to say late 1840s, but I mean the late part of the Advent movement before 1844, Joshua Himes had said that he bought into the 2300-day prophecy, but he never bought into this 2520 prophecy of William Miller. Why was, you know who Joshua Himes was? He was like the PR man. He was the one that just got the thing going. And Joshua Himes said he wouldn't buy into it because... Well, are you back? Are you still in Leviticus 26? Are your Bibles open there? Look there at that verse 21, where it says, And if you walk contrary unto me and will not hearken unto me, I will bring seven times more plagues upon you according to your sins. What Heim said is if you read it, any common person reading it would never even think about the idea of seven years. They would think more like, seven times as much trouble, seven times as much punishment, that kind of seven times. And so, and he said in the Hebrew, it was the same. Do you remember what kind of concordance I told you William Miller used? A crudence. But Joshua Himes was checking on these things, and he was, he was checking into it, into the Hebrew. What he noted here is that the word times is, for practical purposes, supplied. Now, do you notice it's not in italics in your Bible? It's not in italics. Well, that's because of this. The word seven is used there in a substantive way. As if, and literally what it says is, I will punish you seven more plagues. But we don't talk that way in English. We don't use the word seven that way. If we want to to express seven Layers of intensity, I don't know how to think of it, seven, uh, yeah, sevenfold intensity. We could say sevenfold. I wish they'd done it here. Sevenfold. It would have saved so much trouble. But one of the ways we do it is we say seven times. It was two times as hard, kind of like that. And that's how it is here in Leviticus. In fact, I'm going to switch away from the pioneers and just tell you something. The way you find seven times used in Leviticus 26 it's only used that way about six, maybe seven other times in Scripture besides here. I'll just tell you a few of them. One of them is where the Bible says that uh, the righteous man falls seven times and rises again. Do we mean he falls seven years and then rises? That's too long before you get up, right? That's it. What we mean is that every time that he falls, he gets up. 
And then when Nebuchadnezzar said, heat the furnace in Daniel 3, when he said, heat it seven times hotter, he didn't mean heat it up for seven years, right? He meant seven layers. It's these kind of passages that use this phraseology of seven by itself without a number. Anytime, this is what Uriah Smith found and James White found and Hiram Edson, not Hiram, excuse me, that Joshua Himes found, they found that whenever the Bible wants to say a certain number of years, it has a number and then a word for years, like we do, two years, five years, five times. We have both words. So Uriah Smith, when he wrote Daniel and Revelation, by the time he wrote Daniel and Revelation, really, Sabbatarian Adventists were never mentioning this prophecy, but Sunday-keeping Adventists began to mention it again. It was part of a development that eventually would end up encouraging the development of the Jehovah's Witnesses. It was a, a man who was teaching that these, this 2520, if you recalculate it based on even in later captivity, it ends in the 1860s. And this man was teaching that Christ would come back in the 1860s based on the 2520 prophecy. That was mentioned in the Review and Herald just to refute it, to just say it's just silly, it's not even a prophecy. Uriah Smith in Daniel Revelation referred to this chapter. He said, if you think this is a time prophecy, then if you read it carefully, it's in succession. You can't take Miller's view of it. It really is 10,000 years. So Uriah Smith was the last person to address the 2520 for a long time in Adventist history. Let me do a synopsis of the history and then come down to current events because you might have heard about the 2520 recently. One more thing in history. In the 1870s and 80s, the Jehovah's Witnesses picked up the 2520 prophecy. And if you did a Google search today on the 2520, besides finding some Adventist teachers who are promoting it, the other teachers you would find would be the Jehovah's Witnesses. And they'd find it in the most interesting places. They find it, for example, in Daniel chapter 4, where Nebuchadnezzar is told that he would be a beast for seven times. And they find it in Mini Mini Tikal Eupharsin, which is just fascinating. Yeah, in coins, you can add it up and you'll get 2,520. But um, we're not part of that movement. And um, I'm glad. So what has happened more recently? More recently, in the, well, not much more recently, but in the 1890s, a new argument began inside the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Some of you are just wishing I'd hurry up and get done with the history and arguments and have a Bible study. But do listen. It might be helpful to you. It might. It was over the daily. You know, the daily shows up in four passages in Daniel. And... um, it's easy to keep them in your head if you're, if you're in the numbers. They all have 11s associated with them. Uh, one of them is in Daniel 8, 11. If you put it this way, 8, 11, 13, you got the 11 there. And then you have one in Daniel 11, and it's verse 31, kind of like the 13 reversed. Ching, you know, 11, 31. And then in Daniel 12, it's verse 11. 
Will that make any difference to any of you in trying to remember where those are? I don't know if it will. But that's, that's where the daily shows up in the book of Daniel, is those, those places. William Miller, when he studied the daily, he concluded that it represented paganism. Quite a few Seventh-day Adventist expositors afterwards began to criticize William Miller's view of this. One thing that they said is you can't really say that the tribes like the Vandals that were uprooted, you can't really say they were pagan. If you say they were pagan, you better say the papacy is pagan because they just had a slightly different variety of silly ideas about the gospel. But they both were thinking the Bible is basically a true book and that Jesus was sent from heaven or not. But anyway, that yeah, they had semi-Aryan and Aryan views. The idea was that they were already considered themselves to be Christians. And so Louis Conradi, that famous apostate, when he, before he was an apostate by a long shot, he concluded that that daily that was taken away to make room for the papacy did not represent paganism. It represented the high priestly ministry of Jesus. I don't think that I should take the time here to give you a thorough defense of both views. I think it would just, we wouldn't ever get done. But um, you could make a good case for both. Maybe I'll give you two minutes on both sides so you can sort of see it. So on Conradi's side, what you have is, take a look at Daniel 8. You'll see every single symbol there is sanctuary-oriented. The, the ram, the goat, the horns, the daily. It mentions the sanctuary twice, two different Hebrew words. It's, and then the sanctuary is cleansed. It's obviously all about the sanctuary. And when you look at that and you think about what the papacy was doing... Obviously, what the papacy was trying to do, this abomination, was trying to take the place of Jesus, vicarious, you know, the vicar of Christ. And so, in, in his idea, these things just fit really well, and, and he went on. But imagine for a minute that you are Haskell. I love Stephen Haskell. I love to read his writings. He's one of the most... Christ-centered of our pioneers when it comes to writing. Have you read his book, Seer of Patmos or Daniel the Prophet? He had noticed in early writings that Ellen White talked about the daily. She does. She talks about it in that book. And she says something, namely that initially Adventists were united in their view of the daily. That the word sacrifice does not belong to the text. And that afterwards, that when various views came in, that caused division. But, yeah, that's what she says, summarizing what it says in early writings. Haskell was thinking like this. If the prophet says that they were united on the correct view, then obviously William Miller was right. Can you follow sort of Haskell's reasoning on that? And if William Miller said that it was paganism, then it was paganism. And imagine how feelings began to boil in the Adventist leadership. Because if you think that this symbol is paganism and someone calls it Jesus, that sounds very blasphemous. But imagine if you believe that that symbol is Jesus and someone calls it paganism, that sounds very blasphemous. 
And so can you, can you sort of follow what I'm saying about the feelings of the thing? People felt like that their views were so important, the arguments were growing, and it felt to Haskell like it was really an issue about the spirit of prophecy. If you don't believe him, you don't believe the testimonies. This is when Ellen White chimed in in a way that shocked Haskell and confused Conradi. I don't say it was her fault. I'm just thinking that these conclusions were off. Haskell found... Well, do you know Ellen White, Have you read this in Selected Messages, what Ellen White says about the daily? Yes. It's easy to summarize it. She says, first of all, the real issue in the daily is that you need to have a daily conversion. That was her, her major take on this. You need to be converted every day. This is the real issue. Twelve of you are going to sleep right now because I get everyone to stand up for just a minute. Yeah. Just, just a minute. And um, All right, you can sit back down. And um, this was, that was for the benefit of 11 of you, but maybe another 10 or 20 of you that might follow them. There is no clock, is there anywhere? You got a watch. Forty-six. All right. Thank you. Okay. I am. Thank you. Okay. But I'm thinking. I'm not far enough done. I'm not totally okay. Um, the other issue about the daily, she said, is that her writings should not be used to settle the argument. That's the part that shocked Haskell. How can you say not to use them when they, how can you say don't let them settle it when they settle it? That was what he was thinking. But what she explained is that she didn't have any light on the issue under discussion. What she was communicating is that she'd been shown that the word sacrifice was supplied, that you shouldn't be go looking in Jerusalem for a fulfillment of Daniel chapter 8. That was the, the confusion that came in was looking at a literal understanding of the, you know, the Jews and the sanctuary, this kind of idea. But as far as what the daily itself means, she didn't know. But then she said a thing that made everyone feel flustered. I'm exaggerating. I don't know how they felt. It just looks like it in history. And that is, she said, this is not a vital issue. It's not vital. How interesting. It's in Daniel 8 and Daniel 11 and Daniel 12, but it's not vital. I'm going to tell you what I think about that and then go forward. We have three angels' messages to take to the world. What's very clear is that the daily was taken away to make room for the papacy. Whatever the daily is, what's clear is that it was taken away to make room for the papacy and that Babylon is fallen and that the judgment has set and that the mark of the beast is something to avoid, we have these three messages to go to the world, and the world is going to be tested over the issue of the Sabbath, over the seal of God. We have a message for this time. It's about Christ and his righteousness. We have a message about the sanctuary, about the judgment there. We do. And you can preach it with gusto and power without ever making reference to the daily. Therefore, the daily is not a vital issue. Even if they were both wrong. Yeah, that's the idea. She said at that point, when there was a lot of argument on it, that silence was eloquence. Now, I don't think that today you would have to be silent about it. In fact, can I tell you what I think about the daily? 
It should be okay since I already told you I don't think it's a vital issue, right? <laughs> I already told you that. Do you remember what it says in Daniel 7 when it's explaining, when the angel is explaining the prophecy? He refers to that fourth beast that was diverse from all the rest. Diverse, that means different. And then two verses later, it might be verse 26, something like that, it talks about the little horn, and it says that horn was diverse from the rest. That is, it was different. In fact, it was the little horn that made the fourth beast different from the rest. That is, what was diverse about the fourth beast? That was the little horn. And what was the little horn? It was diverse. Diverse is the opposite of the same. What it says in Daniel 8 is when the continuity is taken away. That was a good illustration of taking away the continuity. That was a good (laughs) illustration. That was. The, The continual is an adjective, but when used as a noun, the closest thing we have in English to a noun for continual is continuity. Continuity is sameness. So what does Daniel 8 say? It says the continuity was taken away to make room for what Daniel 7 said was the diverse. Do you follow what I'm saying? And so what I understand by the, by the daily is just that regular succession of empires that really wasn't any different than anything before up until the papacy, which was different. Now, as the daily is just highlighting something about the papacy that came after. That's the idea. So that view I have, do you see that it's not far off from Uriah Smith's view? I mean, the, the idea of it being paganism. It's not far off from it. It's not exactly the same, but it's not far off from it. But is this a vital issue? Not. What is the relevance of this to the 2520 and today? Recently, you can find on the Internet quite a number of websites that indicate that this 2520 is the message for this time. Have you seen these? The message for this time is the 2520. And the logic goes something quite like this. Ellen White, though she never mentioned the 2520, oh, I can write on marker boards. Look at this. What she said is that, well, that's not going to help. Is this a dryer? Oh, there we go. What she said is the chart that was made by the Millerites, that 1843 chart, that it was directed by the hand of God. She says that that chart was the way God wanted it, and God hid a mistake in the chart. And she says that that chart, that the figures were the way God wanted them, and that they should not be altered except by inspiration. I feel a little badly that I've seen it twice this week in publications where that sentence is quoted without the last phrase, where it says the figures in the chart should not be altered. But that changes the meaning of the sentence. It doesn't say should not be altered. It says should not be altered except by inspiration. And the Bible is inspiration. I mean, it really is. What the what Elmite was saying is that it's not by studying the chronology 
the history of ancient civilizations that you're going to change these figures and these dates, you're not going to be changing 457 to 459 or 452. It's not chronology that's going to change anything. Nothing should be changed except by Bible study. Anyway, this is what she said about the chart. And this chart absolutely has, up in this corner, it has the 2520 described there. Later, Ellen White told us as Adventists that we should republish the chart, but we should adjust it some to 1844, not to 1843. And really, we basically reproduced the chart. When we reproduced the chart, we still had on it the 2520. And so the logic going like this is since Ellen White recommended the chart and said it was the way God wanted it, therefore the 2520 is true. What I want to say for, to you is that's the kind of mistake that Haskell might have made, but he was corrected on it in the story of the daily. God never intended the testimonies would be the issues that would settle how we interpret prophecy. He intended that we would settle this by Bible study. And what God said about the chart is that it was his idea to have the disappointment. In fact, that was prophesied in many places. It was his idea to lay it out. Do you remember what it says in Habakkuk 2, where it says, make it plain upon tables? But it's clear in Habakkuk 2 that it's referring to the prophecies of Daniel. Because it says that they speak at the end. It says that he may run that, reads it, like Daniel 12 says, that knowledge will be increased, many shall run to and fro. It says, consider the vision, make a play. It's just very clear that Habakkuk 2 is talking about the prophecies of Daniel. These were the ones that were to be made plain on a table. And I can't fault Miller for putting the 2520 on there since he found it in Leviticus. But I feel very badly when people today would talk about this prophecy as if it is the one that is going to revive us as a people. When if there's anything that's been mentioned in Elmite's writings, she's explained what it is that will revive us as a people. Yes, it is the study of Daniel and Revelation. Particularly, it's a study of the third angel's message. Particularly, it's a study about Christ and his righteousness. It is the message that brings these things together. Have you ever noted in Daniel 11, something that William Miller didn't really see, he couldn't really understand it, that the papacy fights against the covenant? Three times in Daniel 11, the papacy has anger against those who are teaching the covenant. The papacy joins those that forsake the covenant. We know what this covenant is. It's the issue of the seal of God. It's the issue of the Ten Commandments being written in the heart. As we study these books, down Revelation, there's going to be a revival of primitive godliness. Yes, there will be. But it will be based on things that are solid and that our enemies cannot gainsay, not in a court of law, and not before the people who are most studious. It's not in the 2520. Something that even our own studious people realize that we had better leave that behind and realize that it was an innocent mistake that was made by our brethren when they were learning so many things. I'm going to review these thoughts and be done with it. The daily, we better not say it's unimportant because it's in the Bible, and that would be arrogant for people. But we can say it's not a vital question. That if someone makes it vital, they're making a mistake. 
But if the daily that shows up in Daniel 8, 11, and 12 is not vital, what is the 2520? A prophecy that doesn't even exist. We want to be sure not to make new tests, because if we make new tests, we'll be distracted from the real ones. And if we're distracted from the real ones, then the devil has won the very game that he's playing. Yeah. I'll close with a URL. I think everyone in Loma Linda knows what that means. You want to go to bible.doc.org and look for a study on the 2520. Here's what that will do for you. It will give you references for everything I've said, plus a study on Leviticus 26, all the pioneer quotes and the Ellen White statements about the daily. It's all there put together, and then I'll feel like that I don't feel bad about not giving you any notes. Then more than that, you'll want to study about the other angel of Revelation 18 and know really what's the message for this time, because God wants us to share it. Let's bow our heads for a prayer. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would spare us from distractions, but also spare us from apathy. As some here may be confused and believing things that are wrong, I suppose that there are many more here that are doing very little to promote your message. And I pray that you'd save us all from that very mistake that would threaten us, that you'd give us a zeal that's according to knowledge, that you'd open up by your spirit our minds to what's true and important. And I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.